Matthew chapter 27. Thank you so much for reading this morning. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and especially with some of those words, that's Aramaic. I mean, I'm pretty much sure almost every person in this room would have, would have mispronounced Aramaic, seeing that it's a dead language and nobody's just really, really, unless you're watching the Mel Gibson movie, then, then actually you, you heard it. But not too many people speak in Aramaic anymore. Thank you very much for doing that this morning. Matthew 27. We have two more Sundays after this Sunday in the book of Matthew. I can't believe it. It's been a great journey. As we look at the book of Matthew this morning, we're going to keep it pretty much right here. You know, I know sometimes when preachers preach in Matthew, um, they like to bring in the other gospel accounts of the crucifixion and things that are going on. And they do a great job of, of bringing all the elements together and giving a good timeline. But I believe Matthew is trying to drive home some specific points in the way he lays out the crucifixion. And if we bring in Luke and John and, and Mark's accounts and bring them to all the bear upon the crucifixion, we may lose the point that Matthew is trying to make with, by including the details that he specifically includes. So in Matthew chapter 27, we begin here in verse 32. Annalise, would you just make sure that uh, it's on X32? Thanks. Otherwise, you're going to have to control my slide. Is it? Perfect. Great. Now, now it'll show up. All right. Great. This morning, we're going to begin um, in a place that maybe you wouldn't have thought. But before we do so, um, I'd like to just spend a moment in prayer. Father God, um, thank you for the first service. Thank you for the chance to preach this once already this morning. And I thank you for the opportunity to speak of this again. Father God, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be really receptive this morning to the work of the Holy Spirit. Crucifixion is, we've seen movies about it. We've read it time and time again. We talk about it every year, Good Friday. And Lord, I pray that somehow that even though we've talked about it a lot, we've covered it a lot, it would not become trite or commonplace or weak. This morning, as we spend time studying this, they would powerfully move within us. For the cross, truly is our sanity. Truly is our clarity. And as we study this this morning, I pray that that would get just razor focused in, in our hearts and minds this morning. And we would see you and hear from you ways we have not before. <clears throat> Drive us closer into your arms, Lord. For I know there are many that are hurting, that are broken that are weary. And Lord God, we need you this morning. For there is no salvation apart from you. In Jesus' name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
we begin this morning, before we can dive in and look at crucifixion of Christ and what took place, we begin in a place where things were perfect. The garden. You see, the garden was most, so much more than just a pretty place. I don't know, when I think about the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were created in place. Think about the beautiful waterfalls. I, I think about the streams running through the garden, Euphrates. I think about the beautiful trees, that the fruit would have been perfect. I, I, think about, I think about Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed and, 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 and holy before God. I, I think about the animals just the peace and the harmony that there would have been in the garden. I think about the work that Adam and Eve would have been doing. And, and all of those things are amazing. All of those things are so wonderful. But they're not the most important thing in the garden. You know what the most important thing in the garden was? Adam and Eve's ability to walk and talk with God face to face. I mean, it is something that as we sit here and we even bring it up, we're like, that's great for them, but I can't even fathom that. I can't even begin to picture what it would have been like. For in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God himself came down and walked with Adam and Eve. I can only imagine the conversations they would have had. I mean, Adam, like, hey, God, I came up with this really cool name for that animal over there. What do you think? And, 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 and Adam and Eve's going, yeah, well, I think mine was better. And it, there's no animosity. There's no anger. There's, no, there's laughter. There's joy. There's purity. And then they're just having this conversation with God as they're walking about in the garden. And Adam is turning to God saying, God, thank you so much for Eve. She is magnificent. She is beautiful. She is beyond anything I thought I ever could have. Thank you. She is exactly what I needed. And, and there's no thought whatsoever of how Eve has disappointed Adam. Or how Eve hurt Adam earlier in that morning's conversation. And, and then there's Adam, or there's, there's Eve turning to God saying, Man, God, Adam is a great leader. You know, he... That was just really cool. We had this idea to do this, and he just did this, and it was really funny, really cool. And, and thank you so much for giving me this man who leads me perfectly and never makes a mistake and never does anything wrong. He's just awesome all the time. I mean, can you fathom that? Everybody who's been married for more than a day is going, no. God could, Adam could turn to God and he could just share everything uninhibited. And Eve could, could pour out to God. I, I could see Eve just saying, Lord, can you thank you? And just leaning into the Lord and feeling the Lord's presence around her. It must have been amazing. then we messed it all up. 
If it had been any one of us, our name would have been Adam. It could have been Scott. It could have been Ethan, Jeff, Dave. It could have been any one of us in that garden, and we would have made the same mistake. We rebelled against God. We believed the lie of Satan over the, the truth of God. We, we questioned the character of God. We doubted him. We, our pride was so great and so massive that we thought we could be put on the level with God. And we destroyed our relationship with God. And we broke it. We shattered it. And we entered into life outside of the garden. We walked away from this incredible, perfect, wonderful harmony with God. And we were forced out of the garden as we rebelled against God. And we were standing now forced to be outside of the garden. And it doesn't take us long to look at the book of Genesis to realize what does life outside of the garden look like. Cain kills his brother Abel. Murder. Chapter Four. By chapter 6 of Genesis, the world has gone into such a cesspool of immorality, idolatry, hatred, anger, just stinky, nasty, gross sin that God says, I regret making man. And so God takes Noah and his family, puts him in an ark. The whole world is destroyed. Do over, right? But you go, man, and you're, you're right after this. Guess what? Yeah, Noah does. Noah does what Noah does. He grows a vine. And what does he do? He produces wine. And what does he do? He gets drunk. And what does he do after he gets drunk? Well, and then one of his sons causes one of his sons to sin. And here we are back into the mess of cesspool because guess what? Man can't escape life outside of the garden. Man can't go back into the garden. There's nothing man can do to get back into the garden, to get back into that intimate, wonderful holy relationship with God. And when I say garden this morning, that's what I want us thinking about. That walk with God, that intimacy with God, that ability to fellowship and talk without guilt, shame, remorse. There's no way, nothing you and I can do to get back into that place. There's nothing. We are stuck outside of the garden. And what does our life look like? I think it's powerfully revealed what our life looks like as we look at the crucifixion passage. Because as much as we were present in the garden, we're present right here as well. Because if we'd have been there, we would have been saying the same thing, screaming out the same horrible things to Jesus Christ. One of the things that I first noticed as I was going through this crucifixion passage is that the the mocking of Jesus was virtually unanimous. We saw that as we looked at the earlier passages, Matthew 26 and 27, the religious leaders, Peter, you see the abandonment of the disciples, you see also uh, Pilate himself, you see the soldiers, you see the crowd, and when Matthew references these things, he uses all, every. Elders of the people. He's bringing into view all of us are guilty of this. We put Jesus on the cross. Our sin, our gross, nasty junk put Jesus on the cross. We're guilty. Virtually unanimous. 
as people walk by, deride Jesus, speak horrible things to him, wag their heads at Jesus. And you may even notice here, when Christy and I were talking about the passage this week, she brought up the fact that in Luke's gospel, Luke brings up the issue that one of the thieves on the cross does eventually repent and, and turns to Jesus. Would you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He repents, and it's going to be with Jesus. But right here in Matthew's account, he is trying to draw out this point that everybody is guilty. Everybody, those thieves are guilty. Everybody is guilty. Their sin is what is the reason Christ must go to the cross and hang there. We are guilty. We are living outside of the garden. And we need Something to happen that we can't do in order to regain that fellowship and that intimacy with God once again. The second thing we see is that the mocking was intense and angry. Listen, folks, sin is gross. Sin is disgusting. Sin is what hung Jesus on the tree. And there's no little sin. There's sin. Now, we see effects of sin. Some sin have, have greater consequences than other sins. But sin is the reason Jesus hung on the cross. And some of you may be sitting here thinking this morning, my sin isn't that bad. And we'll compare ourselves to somebody else. Our sin is gross and disgusting. The littlest sin, the, the littlest lie to our mom and dad. The littlest rebellious act. Well, they told me I can't have peanut butter in my sandwich. It's sin. It's rebellion against who God has appointed to us and given us authority to watch over us. We sin when, we, when we're at work and when we steal our employer's time by doing what we want to do. And maybe we're on our phones, maybe we're on, but instead of doing what we're supposed to do at work, we're sinning against our employer and we're sinning against. Those are the things that Jesus went to the cross for. They're ugly, they're intense, they're angry, they're gross. And I don't think we've got a real grasp on how gross our sin is. Our pride. Our haughtiness. Our thinking we're better than other people. Our disobedience to pursue God when he's calling us. These are sin, areas of sin that Christ went to the cross for. They're gross. They're intense. They're ugly. Third, this mocking against Jesus is the essence of what our Lord Jesus claimed and taught. Notice here, they point out the fact that Jesus said that he was going to destroy the temple in three days, rebuild it. They're mocking him. I don't see you destroying anything now, Jesus. Jesus has claimed to be the son of God. No son of God would ever hang on a cross, Jesus. The fact that he trusts in the Father's will. Oh, he trusts God? Well, if he trusts God, then God help him out. Since he's still up there, obviously God isn't on his side. Do we understand that when we fail to be obedient to God, we too mock the character of God. 
when God calls us to obey him and pursue him, and we fail to believe that he is good, that he is great, he is glorious, and he is gracious. When we fail to speak the gospel, when we're called to speak, when we fail to, to live the gospel out in front of our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, we are doing the same exact thing that they were doing here because we're saying our God isn't big enough, our God isn't great enough, our God isn't good enough for me to live this way, so I have to modify my life because God isn't good enough. And it is denying the very character of God, the very things that he proclaimed he was, we continue to do today. Fourth, this mocking is really a dare Referencing back to the same kind of temptation that Jesus Christ went through in the wilderness. Remember what Satan said to Jesus? If you do these things, if you bow down to me, if you turn those rocks into loaf of bread. Fifth, the mocking of those who witnessed the death of Christ was a challenge for our Lord to act in a way that would nullify his saving work. You might want to circle this one or underline it in verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. If he comes down from the cross, there's no use for him them to believe in him because his work is incomplete and we're all going to hell. But you see, that's what they want. And that's what oftentimes the world wants, and that's what we struggle with as Christians as well, is having a God we can can define, we can mold and shape, we can manipulate, we can want to do what we want him to do, say what we want him to say, so that we can live however we want to live, because we don't want to modify our lives. We don't want our hearts changed to really follow God. I'll follow you up to this point, God, but you can't take me past that because I really enjoy this, or I really want to do this, or... All the excuses we give. We still are trying to manipulate God. And by doing so, we destroy the power of the cross. These people want the cross destroyed. They want the power of the cross gone. So that then they can show, oh, okay. And they'll believe in him for about two seconds and go back to their wicked ways. Because any hope of overcoming their sin is completely gone. Any hope of returning to the garden and walking with God is gone if Christ comes off the cross. And he obeys and he stays. So that we can have the opportunity to re-enter the garden again someday. Can you hear your voice amongst them? Have you ever thought somehow you were better than these people? For it was our sin that hung him there. And if there's any part in any area of some deep recess of your mind where you think somehow you've earned or you deserve, that term gets a lot of use. You deserve heaven. 
If there's any part or any part of your, in your mind that somehow you think that, you need to seek God out and ask him for forgiveness because the only thing we have earned, the only thing we deserve is hell. Eternal separation from God. That's what we've earned. That's what our lives have led to. That's, why, that's what we deserve. We deserve hell. And Christ, what does he do? He intercedes because we can't get back in the garden. There's an angel standing there with that flaming sword that says nobody can pass, but there must be a sacrifice. That sword must slaughter something and so that we can return to the garden. And there's only one sacrifice that will make it possible for us to re-enter the garden and have fellowship with God. Jeff Vanderstelt powerfully states that when Adam and Eve left the garden, That ever since that day, mankind has been desiring, has been thirsting for re-entry into the garden and has been striving for that on their own. We have a thirst and a desire to re-enter the garden. And not not a false garden, but the real garden, the garden where, where God stands there and so that we can walk and talk with him and know his voice and follow after him and have that abundant life in him. But there's so much deception and so much false paradises and false gardens out there that people are trying to lead others into. When Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the only one that will satisfy the blood that must happen in order for us to re-enter into the garden and have fellowship with God again. We don't deserve this. With the greatest of humility, we accept this gift. This gift of payment to enter into the garden. As I spent time with the preaching team meeting this week, I struggled with using this terminology because I did not want to treat the crucifixion of Jesus Christ Flippantly, but he is the entrance fee that was paid to God the Father for our ability to begin the process of re-entering the garden. This is what it took for you and I to have fellowship with our Father again. Verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. I don't know about you, but there's sometimes I'm reading different articles on the text, and there's a pastor who made this statement. And You ever read something you just wanted to punch somebody in the face? It's one of those moments. He, um, he wrote that, you know, all this darkness was just God protecting Jesus from the shame of, of bearing the sin of the world and didn't want to see Jesus go through this agony. But when I look in scriptures and I understand what darkness is, what the Jews understood darkness to be, darkness is this idea of sin veiling the truth, this idea of unable to discern what God wills, wants, and desires. The wrath of God was being poured out on the Son because our sin... 
our deception, our lies, our junk was being poured out on Jesus. And the whole world was made black from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. It would have been noticeable. And for, for the scientists who keep trying to, the solar eclipse theory, it just doesn't pan out. This was a spiritual event that happened in the physical realm. And I know some people struggle with the whole passion of Christ theories, and there's some Roman Catholic things that are involved in there that we don't quite understand. But what I do appreciate about the passion is they bring the spiritual events that were going on into the physical reality this is spiritual and physical just just slamming together at this moment a very physical representation of what our sin looks like just blackness darkness veiling the world being poured out on one person jesus christ Three hours of utter darkness. You can only imagine the scene. Chaos. Yeah, this is back in the days before street lamps. Back in the days before flashlights. Before the sticks that you can break and shake and be able to see your way around. And before the LED lights and everything. It, it, when things went dark there, it was pitch black. You couldn't see the person next to you. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was pitch black. I'm sure it was a very chaotic scene. As I, as I think about this moment, I could just feel the grossness and the weight of the air that had to surround the cross. After the ninth hour, after 3 p.m., Jesus cried out, <clears throat> Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another knucklehead writer says, well, Jesus just did this so scripture could be satisfied. Are you kidding me? The forsakenness that Jesus felt at that moment was real. And it is so Hard for us to comprehend and hard for us to speak correctly about. Because the triune God has eternally existed, coexisted together in perfect harmony and perfect unity. Except for one moment in the history of the Trinity. At this moment, the fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit was broken as Jesus Christ became the sin of the world. And this perfect union was held in brokenness for this time. And we can't grasp that. We can't even begin to fathom that. I mean, how many of you would like to go upstairs, grab your child right now, walk them down the stairs, and we erect a cross out front, and you bring them, and you hold them in place while you nail, you nail the nails through their hands. Could you do it? And then could you turn to, to one of us who will go out and sin the very next minute or the next hour or the next day and say, we're doing this for them. You see, the father walked the son to the cross. You got to grasp that. How many times in Matthew have we heard, this took place to fulfill the, what the prophet said. This took place to fulfill what scripture said. The father orchestrated this plan and the father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is walking Jesus to the cross and 
He is staying up there for us. You don't think that the Godhead, the, the just brokenness and the heartache that happened within the Godhead at that moment, for what? For us. Who are we? Nothing. But to God, we're valued at the price of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our value and that's our worth. After this, some of them said, went to get Jesus some basically pain medication before it could even take effect. Jesus cries out with a voice, and I want you to notice something. I want you to underline this in your Bible, if you will. In verse 50, Jesus didn't, his spirit wasn't taken from him. Scriptures say he yielded up. Jesus died for us. Jesus surrendered his life for us. The scriptures state here in Matthew that the curtain of the temple was torn. And if you've ever seen depictions of it, it was a very thick curtain. You couldn't grab hold of that and rip it with your hands. And notice how it was torn. It was torn top to bottom. God had removed the barrier for us and him. You see, the, the Holy of Holies was a place that was visited on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of himself would go through a ritualistic cleansing. He donned ceremonial garb and, and, and a clothing and attire that had bells around the bottom. And he had a rope tied around his ankle. And he proceeded into the Holy of Holies. And, and, and if God knew his sacrifice wasn't genuine, he was dead. And that's why he had bells on his garment, because when the bells stopped moving for a time, there were priests outside waiting to, to listen for the bells. And when they stopped moving for a while, they would drag him out. That veil was torn. So that now, man has direct access to God. And, and you see, when, when God brought the Adam and Eve out of the garden, he, he took them and he, they had a period of time and then they went into slavery and to Egypt and after coming out of Egypt, God said, I want you to build a place where I can dwell with you and amongst you. And so they built this tent called the tabernacle. And when God brought them to the promised land and they were able to dwell in that land, God gave Song of Solomon the instructions to build the first temple. And God dwelt in the temple. But now because of Jesus Christ, God now dwells temples is present within us. God the Holy Spirit indwells the life of the believer. What a radical shift and what a radical change. It is that first step of re-entry back into the garden. God is making us new. He's redeeming us. And soon, hopefully very soon, God will return and completely restore us. And once again, we'll be fully in the garden 
fully in the presence of God, walking hand in hand with him, able to fellowship, able to talk with him, and the cares of this world will be gone, and the only thing we're going to care about is Jesus Christ. This is what it took for those events to start taking place. Jesus is credited in scriptures with creating. He's the creator. God planned it. Jesus created it. The Holy Spirit sustains it. And in this moment, the creator died. And creation reacts. The earth shakes. The rocks were split, and I can't help. And this is a this is a sidebar conversation. I don't I don't think that this is exactly what the text is driving at, but I can't help but recall verses of scripture where Jesus, where God had prophesied that He will take our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. He is splitting these rocks. He's splitting, and so it makes it possible for our hearts to be made new. And then the craziest thing of all. Tombs were opened. Stones rolled away before Jesus' stone rolled away. Tombs were opened. But if you read the text there, you may be a little bit bewildered because you're like, okay, the tombs were opened, but nobody gets out. I mean, I can only imagine the odors that's going to come from these tombs as the stones are rolled away. And for three days, nobody comes out, but the tombs are rolled away, opened up. And I'm sure by the end of this time, people are trying to figure out. But Jesus has done this in a way that they can't be closed back up. At the end of three days, the saints start walking out. After Jesus is resurrected from the day, the saints come out of these tombs. Now, who are the saints? Great question. All we can do is speculate. But in Matthew, Jesus has already talked about Jerusalem. You, O Jerusalem, you who murder the prophets and murder the saints. Wait a minute. Could this be Zechariah? Could this be Jeremiah? Could this be Ezekiel? Could this be Malachi? Walking out telling, I told you he was coming. I told you. He came. He did exactly like the scripture said he was going to do. And he's now risen from the grave. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? How does this change? I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like? But I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus dies upon the cross and the reaction of the soldiers. Truly, this was the Son of God. From the mouths of the goyim, from the mouths of the unclean, uneducated, ignorant Gentiles, This must be the Son of God. This was not a normal crucifixion. These guys had crucified a lot of people. But never had darkness covered the land for three days. Never had there been an earthquake. Never had they seen rocks split. Never had they seen tombs opened. This is way different. Who is this guy? Women looking on at a distance can only imagine... What is going on through their minds? Their love for Jesus. And let me tell you something. Anybody who ever knocks the courage of women in faith need to have their heads examined because I know that John is somewhere around the scene because of the gospel of John. 
but he's the only one. But the ladies, the ladies are present. Bewildered, possibly confused, but they can't leave. I enjoy watching Roman time era movies. I enjoy the idea of honor and courage. Great scene in the movie Gladiator, and I know it's a movie, got people that have differing opinions about it. The great scene, though, in that movie, at the end of the movie, when Russell Crowe lies on the, the floor of the arena, having just killed the emperor, he himself dies. The emperor's sister comes out and says, who will honor this soldier of Rome? And they gather together in this great procession. They reach down and they, they pick up his body and they, they carry him out in this procession of people who honor him. But what's crazy is the, the person who should be honored the most, it is one man. We also read in the Gospel of John that Nicodemus also comes. But it's Where's this procession? Where are all the people that are going to take care of Jesus? Jesus is abandoned. He is forsaken. And it had to be so, so you and I could gain re-entrance back into the garden. Our king is buried shamefully. Laid in a tomb with no one there to, to mourn. No mourners to come. Shamefully. He died upon the cross, a place of shame. He bore it for us so that we might have fellowship with him and we might be his kingdom people that glorify him and glorify the king. What's so amazing about this is in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is king, Jesus is king, Jesus is king, and he does something that no other king would ever do. He goes and he says to you, someday you're going to be my people, my servants, and in order to do so, I must die for you. I must sacrifice for you so that you can be my servants and you can call me king. Kings don't do that. Kings turn to the servants and say, by might and power and will, you will follow me. You will do what I tell you to do. I own your land. I will take your land. I will, you know, that's how they kings worked. But Jesus Christ is a king like no other king. He comes first as the suffering servant, dies for us so that we can then proclaim him a king and rejoicingly be his servants. So what's our dilemma? What's our problem? We still struggle with following the king and being the kingdom people we're called to be. We're still struggling with those secret sins. We're still struggling with lives that lead to selfishness. Let me tell you something. So many times I hear these passages preached, and I've even preached in this way. That this is all about the individual. Jesus saved me from my sin. But to preach that way, yes, it is true. Christ saved me individually. But for the purpose of redeeming the church. That we might be a holy people. First service this morning, Stephanie, God put upon Stephanie's heart to have us do the Lord's Prayer together. And how does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father. 
we, Christ died so that we wouldn't be a bunch of individual followers of Jesus. Christ died so that we might be a people brought together, united in the banner of Jesus Christ. Christ should be our banner. Christ should be the reason we gather together. Why do we gather together on a Sunday morning? Jesus Christ. Why do we go out during the week? Jesus Christ. Why are we teachers, lawyers, doctors, architects, daycare providers, students? Why? Jesus Christ. Do we get that? It's for him, and we're supposed to rally around him, and we're supposed to draw together for him and for his calling, his purpose. He is redeeming us to be his united body of believers in him. It's supposed to be about Jesus. It's supposed to be all about him and his work and what it took that he did for us so that we can have re-entrance to the garden. So that when we get a march into kingdom's gates someday, heaven together, we're singing together in one voice, praise be to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we will sing those courses over together as a united body of believers. The individualism in heaven will be disappeared. God is drawing us together as a body of believers. He is saving us for his kingdom work to be his kingdom people, united in him, on mission for him. And I guess that's what the elders want to know more than anything else, is what is the mission God wants for us to do? United in Jesus Christ in every aspect, in every way. We want to pursue God unabandoned. I sit here this morning, having preached this message twice, very aware of my failures in this area to live for Jesus. Very aware of why he hung on the cross for my sins very aware of which one of these statements I would have yelled out. Beautiful thing about the cross is it's something we need every single day of our lives. The cross doesn't stop affecting us and changing us when we trust in Jesus for that first time. The cross continues to impact us as we understand what Christ did for us every day. And he calls out sin in our lives and by the Holy Spirit's power convicts us and draws us closer to him. I don't know about you this morning, but I need that. I need him to keep working on that. And to quote my theology professor at Dallas, I wish he would stop, but I need it. Because if he exposes sin in my life, that's a hard process. As it should be. Because to be identified with my Savior means that I suffer with my Savior as he is in the process of redeeming and setting me apart, setting us apart for his work and his glory.
Because, brothers and sisters, that's the only thing that matters. The glory of Jesus Christ. And I want to say this morning, and I hope you can say it with me, do whatever it takes, God. Do whatever it takes to set us apart. Please. Everything is yours. We want to be a holy people for the purpose of God. Please join with me in prayer. Father God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the suffering of my Savior. Thank you for the shame. I thank you, Lord God, that there's nothing that I can do to ever earn it. Lord God, I thank you that it is free gift. I thank you, Lord God, for making it possible for us to take one step closer to that garden moment. When someday, face to face, we will see our Savior and be able to proclaim his glory and shout his majesty face to face. But until that day, Lord God, please keep your redeeming work active in us. Do not let us rebel and push away. Do not let us become self-seeking. Do not let us become isolated individuals. Let us, Lord God, draw together for strength, for encouragement, for the kingdom work of God. Lord God, reveal the kingdom work to this body of believers. Let us be a people who want to know where you want to take us. And we're willing to say, it's all yours, God. Set us apart, please. For what we're not doing. For It's not working, Lord God, what we're doing. We're just beating our chest. We're just flailing in the wind. We're the reed tossed to and fro. Concrete us, solidify us, Lord God, in your character and the love for the saints. Thank you, Lord God, for these moments. And may the teaching of the cross of Jesus Christ never grow old, never become commonplace, never become trite. May it always continue to radically alter and change our hearts and lives in pursuit of being set apart for you. In Jesus' name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat>